Father, as we look through Daniel 4 this morning, might your spirit be speaking to each one just the things we need to hear. Exalt yourself, Lord, and instruct us in the way to go. In Jesus' name, amen. We're changing gears a little bit this morning in Daniel 4. If you remember during the introduction for this book, 12 chapters, cut them in half, cut the halves in half again. We've just finished the first quarter, chapters 1 through 3. Chapter 4 uh, changes gears a little bit. Chapters 1 through 3, God was delivering his own. Each chapter had some deliverance of God for those who knew him. Chapter 4 through 6, in each chapter you'll see God judging or ruling uh, over primarily Gentile powers. That's where we'll start this morning. In this chapter, chapter 4, we're going to see the greatest power on earth, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, go up against the greatest power in heaven and lose big time. Chapter 4 is also unique because it is hard to say who wrote it. Daniel could have written this. Another amanuensis or secretary could have written it. We're not really sure, but it is a proclamation. So these are Nebuchadnezzar's words from Nebuchadnezzar, different than the rest of the book. Nebuchadnezzar, speaking in Daniel 4, verse 1, Nebuchadnezzar, to the king, the king to all the peoples, nations, and men of every language that live in all the earth, may your peace abound. Remember, this is a proclamation from the king to most of the civilized world, so he's a, he literally is addressing men of multiple nations and languages. It has seemed good to me to declare the signs and wonders which the Most High God has done for me. How great are his signs, how mighty are his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and his dominion is from generation to generation. Now, it's taken quite a lot for our king, our friend, to be able to write these words. And this is at the end of the story that he is now going to relate to us. These words echo things he's already heard in chapter 2, that the God of Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, the God of Israel, is the high God, the God of heaven versus God's on earth, that he's the one who rules. And that's the word or the thought that he echoes here as he begins this. It's interesting when he says he's declaring the signs and wonders the Most High God has done for him. This sounds good. This sounds positive. And the, the wonders and and signs God has done for me. And then, of course, as we read the story, we're going to find out what the wonders and signs are. And the wonders and signs are, are that God humbles this mighty king. So when he declares in this proclamation his praise to this God and the great thing this God had done for him, he's actually thanking God for humbling him. Thanking God for chopping him down to size, as we'll see, and humbling him. And it's because he recognizes now at the end of this story that he's going to begin telling us here, he recognizes at the end of the story that what he was before in his pride wasn't good and that God's humbling of him, difficult, painful, not something he was looking for, asking for, actually set him free. It was a good thing in the end, and so he thanks God at the beginning that God intervened on his behalf by humbling him. Some commentators are divided on whether Nebuchadnezzar actually becomes converted, but I, it's my opinion that in 
chapter 4 that what you see in his acknowledgement of the king of heaven is conversion. Starting again at verse 4, Nebuchadnezzar was at ease in my house and flourishing in my palace. Uh, This thing at ease, he's laying back and he's enjoying life. And the term that says he's flourishing, this literally means he's green. And the thought here, which of course carries repercussions if you know the rest of the story, he's like a plant that's well watered. He's got everything he needs and he is green and flourishing. That's the thought. Like a, the best house plant you've got or a tree in the yard that's, that's growing, thriving, and doing great. And remember, this incident takes place near the end of his life. So Daniel's not written chronologically, not all of it. So we've jumped maybe 30 years from chapters 1 and 2 to chapter 4. This is near the end of his life. And to put this in perspective, you need to remember that not only was he the great king of his day, but the city of Babylon was one of the great wonders this world has ever seen. As a city, there was nothing like the city of Babylon. And you can read all kinds of discourses. Herodotus, one of the ancient uh, historians, writes about this. This city that he's reclining in, kind of his footstool, his living room, the city of Babylon, was remarkable. Some estimate the wall height at over 300 feet, the width at the top at 80 feet wide. They could drive four chariots across it. When Babylon was eventually destroyed, which we'll read about in the book of Daniel, it was not because anyone breached the walls like they did to Jerusalem. It's because they came under the walls where the Euphrates River came through the city of Babylon. They were shrewd and diverted the river and so forth, but these walls, it was impenetrable. And in fact, later, when, Neb- uh, when Nebuchadnezzar's grandson uh, from the Medes and the Persians is attacked, they don't care. They've got so much food and so much space and so much resources inside this gym in the modern-day uh, area of Iraq, they don't care that they're besieged. They figure we can hold out here indefinitely, longer than the armies can outside. It also was the home of the Hanging Gardens, and the Hanging Gardens of Babylon considered one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. This, this place was beautiful. There was no place else like it on earth. So when this says he's at ease, and he's like this green plant, he is, he is looking at the fruit of probably three decades of investment, the richest man in the world building a city for three decades. This is a big deal. You know, you read the little farmer, the little farmer guy in Luke 12, the parable that says, you know, well, here's this guy, and I've got barns, but they're not big enough. And so I build bigger barns so I can store all this grain, and I'll sit back and say to myself, just relax and enjoy it. Well, Nebuchadnezzar's that farmer multiplied, you know, a hundred times or a thousand times. He has real wealth, the greatest city in the world, the loveliest place in the world, maybe one of the loveliest places the world's ever seen. That's what he's looking at as he's at ease and looking out over his domain. So this was no small thing. This was an incredible place, an incredible time. And he was at the head. He was the top of the heap. He says, verse 5, he's laying back, relaxing, enjoying his golden years, his retirement years here. And then he says, verse 5, I saw a dream and it made me fearful, or literally it terrified me. These fantasies, as I lay on my bed and the visions in my mind, kept alarming me or dismaying me. And Remember, he's had this uh, kind of episode before. I've seen something in a dream. I don't know what it means, but it troubles me, and I know this is no ordinary dream. So, 
reminiscent of chapter 2, I gave orders to bring into my presence all the wise men of Babylon that they might make known to me the interpretation of the dream. So the magicians, the conjurers, the Chaldeans, the diviners came in and I told the dream to them, but they could not make its interpretation known to me. Finally, Daniel came in before me, whose name is Belteshazzar, according to the name of my God, and who, in whom is a spirit of the holy gods. And I related the dream to him, saying, O Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians, musicians, magicians, since I know that a spirit of the holy gods is in you, and no mystery baffles you, tell me the visions of my dream which I have seen, along with its interpretation. The wise men couldn't interpret the dream. And, you know, earlier in chapter 2 we talked about this. He had a dream and he wouldn't tell them what the dream was. You tell me the dream, he says, then I'll know that you can give me the correct interpretation. I suspect the Chaldeans were a little more careful when they told the king what a dream meant. Once they've seen Daniel can tell the dream and its meaning. So they walk in here. He doesn't withhold the dream. He tells it to them, but they say, we don't know. Daniel's not with them initially. He comes in later. We might say, well, why is King Nebuchadnezzar even asking these guys when Daniel's there? Hard to answer all the questions, but perhaps he's still a pagan at this point, and he still calls Daniel by his God's name, Belteshazzar, so to speak. He's probably still what we would call double-minded. He's seen God's power on one hand, but he still isn't converted, and so he still probably relies on his old ways, and that would include the magicians that he's had all his life and grew up with. Daniel eventually comes in to save the day. Verse 10, we're going to hear about the vision, the dream that he had. These were the visions in my mind as I lay on my bed. I was looking, and behold, there was a tree in the middle of the earth, and its height was great. The tree grew large and became strong. It reached to the sky. It was visible to the end of the whole earth. Its foliage was beautiful and its fruit abundant. In it was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it. The birds of the sky lived in its branches. All living creatures fed themselves from it. I was looking in the visions of my mind as I lay on my bed, and behold, an angelic watcher, a holy one, descended from heaven. He shouted out and he spoke as follows, Chop down the tree cut off its branches, strip off its foliage, scatter its fruit, let the beasts flee from under it and the birds from its branches, yet leave the stump with its roots in the ground, but with a band of iron and bronze around it in the new grass of the field. This changes, and let him, we find out now the tree is a him, this is what the angels proclaiming, let him be drenched with the dew of heaven, let him share with the beasts in the grass of the earth. Let his mind be changed from that of a man. Let a beast's mind be given to him. And let seven periods of time pass over him. Seven is an important number biblically. It's an important number in Daniel. It's going to come up again later. We, we assume that the seven periods of time would be seven years because of its use later. This sentence is by the decree of the angelic watchers. The decision is a command of the holy ones, and this is why the command is given, in order that the living may know that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind. 
He bestows it on whom he wishes and sets over it the lowliest or the basest of men. Well, if we ask who the watchers are or the holy ones, he said angelic watchers, probably angels. Probably wrong thinking if we, if we conclude because they've called this out that they're actually the ones imposing the judgment. Later on in verses 25 and 32, it's clear that the angels, these, these who are watching over the earth, are actually speaking on behalf of God. So this isn't angels doing their own thing. These are the angels speaking on behalf of heaven in Nebuchadnezzar's dream. Now you, Belteshazzar, tell me its interpretation, inasmuch as none of the wise men of my kingdom is able to make known to me the interpretation, but you are able, for a spirit of the holy gods is in you. Verse 19, I like Daniel's response. Daniel, whose name is Belteshazzar, was appalled for a while, for a period of time, as his thoughts alarmed him or dismayed him. He has the same reaction that Nebuchadnezzar did. He's alarmed, dismayed. The king responded, seeing his response, this doesn't look good, and he knows it. He sees this guy is dismayed when he's heard the dream. The king says, Belteshazzar, don't let the dream or its interpretation alarm you. And Daniel replied, My lord, if only the dream applied to those who hate you and its interpretation to your adversaries. When Daniel hears the dream, he knows what it means. God's given him this ability. We're told earlier, he knows what it means. And I... I guess one of the reasons I love this verse is Daniel is a Jew in Babylon. So he's a captive in a foreign land. He serves at the pleasure of the king. And he'd rather be back in his home country. But his first response for a Gentile pagan king whom he knows God is using to judge Israel, his first response is, you're going to get, is not, you're going to get yours now. It's not, I can hardly wait. This is so cool. You're going to be cut down, bud. His first response is, I wish this applied to someone else and not to you. So he's probably worked with Nebuchadnezzar for 30 years. He may have been praying for Nebuchadnezzar for 30 years. And his first response when he understands that what the message is for his king, his first response is care and concern for the king. It's not delight in judgment. It's care and concern for his well-being. And This is a great reminder to me. I hope it is to you, too. You know, oftentimes we're placed in positions where those in authority over us aren't the best people that they should be. We might not like them. We might not approve of what they do. And God not only calls us to submit ourselves to those authorities, legitimate claims they have on us. Here, he's not even a Christian. Daniel's not New Testament. He doesn't even have enjoined on him the kinds of things like love your enemy. He's got the imprecatory psalms he can rely on if he wants to. Lord, curse those who've come against me. But he doesn't. His first thought is for the good of King Nebuchadnezzar. And this is a great example to us. You know, we have New Testament texts that tell us to pray for those in authority over us. It doesn't say if they're good only. Pray for those in authority over you. And that's for their benefit. It's also for our benefit. But this is just a a sterling, another one of those examples where we see Daniel is the kind of man you could pattern your life after and say you can follow his footsteps. So he didn't just serve grudgingly. He actually had affection, care, and concern for this pagan king he was compelled to serve. Great example 
for us. I want to ask myself if I pray for the ungodly employers or supervisors or politicians that you and I may be under in some way. Great reminder. Daniel, who has the Spirit of God and knows what this dream means, tells him in verse 20 and on, the tree that you saw, he says, verse 22, is you, O king. You have become great. You have grown strong. Your majesty has become great and reached to the sky. Your dominion reaches to the end of the earth. In that the king saw an angelic watcher, a holy one, coming down from heaven and saying, chop down the tree, yet leave it stumped, its stump. Verse 24, this is the interpretation, or king, this is what it means. This is the decree of the Most High, which has come upon my Lord the King, and this is it, that you be driven away from mankind. Your dwelling place be with the beasts of the field. You be given grass to eat like cattle, be drenched with the dew of heaven, and seven periods of time will pass over you. And this is the key, verse 25, until... This is going to happen. This judgment is going to fall on you. You as a tree are going to be cut down until you recognize that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and gives it to whomever he wishes. You're going to be judged until you realize something. And this is it, that God rules, not you. Verse 26, in that... Uh, in that it was commanded to leave the stump with the roots of the tree. Your kingdom will be assured to you after you recognize that it is heaven that rules. This would be important. You remember in ancient history, uh, perhaps more so than today, if a king was in any way compromised, there were probably ten wannabe kings in the, in the wings who would kill him and take his spot. King Nebuchadnezzar is told, you're actually going to be restored to power. This was, un, this was unheard of. God's going to remove you. You're going to be out of your senses like a beast, but you'll be restored eventually to your throne. Therefore, O king, may my advice be pleasing to you. Break away now from your sins by doing righteousness and from your iniquities by showing mercy to the poor in case there may be a prolonging of your prosperity. Daniel's advice is good, and we've got two things here that we'll look at. God has a bone to pick with the king. God has a bone to pick with the king. The king thinks it's his power that set everything up. He thinks it's by his ability that he rules the earth. He thinks it's for his glory that Babylon, the empire, is all that it has become under his leadership. And God's going to help him understand that that's not quite the way it is. Listen to words out of the Old Testament from another king uh, so that one in authority in a ruling kingdom of the earth who describes God. First Chronicles 29, David blessed the Lord in the sight of all the assembly. And David said, Blessed are you, Lord God of Israel, our Father, forever and ever. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness, the power, the glory, the victory, the majesty, indeed everything that is in the heavens and the earth. Yours is the dominion, O Lord, and you exalt your head at you exalt yourself as head over all. Riches and honor come from you. You rule over all. In your hand is power and might, and it lies in your hand to make great and to strengthen everyone. Now, therefore, our God, we thank you and praise your glorious name. 
David ruled a nation. In fact, during David's day, Israel was the predominant a nation or a nation state in the world. No one could come in and defeat Israel in the day of David. They occupied under David and Solomon to the Euphrates River, well into the Babylonian area. They occupied down into northern Egypt, Mediterranean, and east into modern-day Jordan and Arabia. But that king said, God, you're it. In fact, other places, you know, David's called a man after God's own heart. He says, God, who am I that you should give this stuff to me? What, what's my household? Who am I? Who is my father that you would bless me by making me king? Because he understood it was God's doing that made him great. It was at God's pleasure that men were enriched or given strength or power. And so God's telling Nebuchadnezzar, you're going to be humbled until you get what David knew, that God rules. We talked when we introduced the book that God is in control. Look at the second element here. And that is Daniel's remedy. Daniel doesn't say the dream will not take place. But he does say, in case there may be a prolonging of your prosperity. A judgment has been given, and I think Daniel understands sooner or later it's actually going to happen. It's been decreed. But King, there's actually something you can do, and that is to change your behavior and allay or defer this judgment. And look at what he says to do. First, Daniel says, you need to do righteousness. You need to practice righteousness. Now remember, because pride is the issue here behind this whole chapter, pride is the issue, and his first remedy is to say do righteousness, it's because pride deludes us into thinking that we're not constrained by the standards that apply to others. Pride deludes us into thinking that we're not constrained by what others should be constrained by. So that we become a standard for ourselves, a law unto ourselves, when we elevate ourselves irrationally in pride. So that the more I entertain pride, the more at liberty I feel to do whatever I please, right or not right. And... I'm sure all of us, both in the scriptures and in real life, have seen people who were lifted up in pride and you'd see these sins in their life and you'd think, well, surely they know better. Surely they should know better. And you know, at one point, when their minds were clear and rational and they were humbler, they did. But pride, like any sin, it has this deadening effect. It has this hardening effect. So that the more I give myself to pride, the less real judgment I have, the less real understanding I have. And so one of the effects of pride in Nebuchadnezzar's life was that he was unrighteous. And Daniel calls him on it. I'm not sure what all this looked like. What did unrighteousness look like for this king? He could do anything he wanted. No one could oppose his will. So he certainly had opportunity to do whatever he wanted, take whatever he wanted, kill anyone he wanted. So I don't know exactly what it looked like, but he knew, should have known, because Daniel points out he was unrighteous. And the unrighteousness, Daniel says, is tied to your pride. Tied to your pride. We, the more we entertain pride, the easier it is for us to do unrighteousness, to lose our sense of what's right and wrong, at least applied to us. 
So the first thing Daniel exhorts righteousness as a remedy to the unrighteousness his pride had brought about. Look at the second thing. The second thing Daniel says as a means of deferring this judgment is to show mercy to the poor. Show mercy to the poor. Remember, he's the top of the heap, not just in Babylon, in the world. There's no person elevated higher uh, than Nebuchadnezzar was. But along this line, why is Daniel saying show mercy to the poor? I assume it's because pride allows us to treat others we consider beneath us with contempt. Again, just like pride with unrighteousness, our judgment is diluted. The same thing applies to the way we treat others. If I proudly think I'm better than someone else, then I think it's okay to treat them badly. Pride makes me think other people are less valuable than myself. We read in this verse earlier, God says, I take the lowest kind of person. I take the scum of the earth, the basis, and I make them a ruler over all. That kind of should have been a slap in the king's face. You're a base thing that I've elevated, Nebuchadnezzar. But the more we entertain pride, the easier it is for us to defraud others, to show contempt to others, or a lack of mercy or esteem in, in who knows how many ways. And certainly Nebuchadnezzar could have done that too. Every day all day. Everyone was poorer than he. And you know, just again, a good reminder to us, how do we look at the people in the world around us? If we're entertaining pride, we generally we feel like we can do things others can't, and we can look down on others that aren't our social, financial peers, uh, that we think aren't as good looking, as successful, as academically successful, whatever. Whatever standard the world can use to measure, If we feel that we make it in one area, then we can boost ourselves in this pride, then we can look down on others and treat them badly without mercy, just as this king had done. So Daniel says, you've got two things that I know you can do to allay this disaster. You can do right, and you can show mercy. In fact, you know, you go along in Micah's day, total unrighteousness in Israel, very ungodly, Micah makes it very simple for the Jews in that day. He says, what does God require of you? Do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with your God. That's the same type of thought here. Justice, righteousness, mercy, and humility. That's really what God and Daniel are trying to enjoin on Nebuchadnezzar. It's obviously not going to work here short term, but that's the bottom line. So just a reminder, the more we entertain pride, the easier it is for us to sin, Morally, the easier it is for us to look down on others and to treat other creatures just like us, vessels of mercy God has sacrificed His Son for, to treat them with contempt. Pride allows us to do that. At verse 28, it says this happened to Nebuchadnezzar the king. You know, he was probably doing great. It says 12 months later, 29, he listened. He probably got a few things right. He probably got up and thought, oh, you know, change my ways this morning. I'm going to do this thing right. And probably for a while, he did better. But, you know, he really hasn't learned his lesson. So verse 29, 12 months later, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. He reflected and said, is this not Babylon the Great, which I myself have built? Remember the statue he set up? 
God says, I've given you a kingdom, and Nebuchadnezzar sets up a statue, and we understand this is what the king does, not what God does. And here he says to himself, I myself have built Babylon the Great, a royal residence by the might of my power and for the glory of my majesty. See, it all comes out. You know, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Well, eventually it all comes out. And here it is. I am God. I am king. My might, my power, my glory. That's what I'm after. That's what this is all about. Verse 31, while the word was still in the king's mouth, a voice came from heaven saying, King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is declared sovereignty is removed from you. The fulfillment of the dream is here. You're going to be driven from mankind. You'll be given grass to eat like cattle seven periods of time until you recognize that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whomever he wishes. The judgment has come. The judgment is going to last until you recognize that God rules. You don't. Immediately the word concerning him was fulfilled. He was driven from mankind, began eating grass like cattle. Body was drenched with the dew of heaven. Hair grew like eagle's feathers, nails like bird's claws. I mentioned during the introduction, this is not an unheard of condition. This has actually been seen in mental institutions in various parts of the world. People who actually appeared quite healthy but had this animal uh, really ate just like this. This really happened to him. Verse 34, so for seven periods of time, probably seven years, Nebuchadnezzar's out on the lawn feeding. He says, at the end of that period, I, Nebuchadnezzar, I love this phrase, I raise my eyes toward heaven. I raise my eyes toward heaven, and my reason returned to me. It's when he looks up to God, this humble beast, this creature, looks up to God, turns to heaven, that his reason returned to him. I blessed the Most High. I praised and honored him who lives forever. His dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. Remember, this is his conclusion. He started with this, he ends with this, because he really has learned his lesson. All the inhabitants of the earth, and when he says this, he's including himself, are accounted as nothing before God, the great mighty God of the universe. He does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. His will is carried out in heaven above and on earth beneath. No one can ward off his hand or say to him, What have you done? As if anyone can sit in judgment on God and say, What do you think you're doing? At that time my reason returned to me. My majesty and splendor were restored. The glory of my kingdom, my counselors and nobles sought me out. I was reestablished in my sovereignty surpassing greatness was added to me. You remember when we looked at the three guys in the furnace and we went through the list of they went in bound, they came out free, they went in when they were successful, what came out to increased honor. Same thing is here true of Nebuchadnezzar. For him there was no furnace, but there was the insanity of seven years of being like a critter on the earth, eating grass like a cow, and it produced the same thing in his life that it had in the lives of our three Jewish buddies yet freed him. He went in bound and he came out free. Different kind of fire, if you will, different kind of judgment, but the same benefit, the same effect. He says at verse 37, Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise, exalt, and honor the king of heaven, 
For all his works are true, his ways are just, and he is able to humble those who walk in pride. His sanity returns when he lifts his eyes to heaven. And the thought is, I'm a creature on earth, God is in heaven, he does as he please, and I lift my eyes to recognize my position and his. I'm down below, he's up above. I'm the inferior, he's the superior. I'm the one who works at his bidding, he's the one calling the shots in my life and in the world. Now, step back and, and look at the dynamics again of this story for just a minute. Nebuchadnezzar's pride was, in fact, insanity. His vanity did not allow him to perceive the world as it really is, or himself, or God. <clears throat> Think about this for just a second. If sanity is to perceive the world as it really is, and insanity is to be disassociated with reality, his pride was a form of insanity. So that his perception of the world, that he was in control, that was insane. That did not comport with what was real. When you and I lift ourselves up in pride, you know what? We're insane. We're out of our minds. We're mad. That pride, it, it's not, it does not comply with reality. On the opposite hand, when he's like a beast, the, the beastly status, it's actually, you could think of it's the full-fledged flower of his insanity. But it also reflects truth. Because here, when he's finally humbled and brought low, that's reality. On one hand, it's the ultimate culmination of pride, insanity, insanity full-blown. On the other, it's the beginning of humility and deliverance because once he recognizes what he really is compared to God, who he really is, then his sanity, his mind, his understanding is restored. Humility, this is interesting when you think about sanity, what's rational, madness, humility, and pride. Humility, we've talked about this before, but humility does not mean thinking less of myself than I should. It means having an accurate assessment of myself. Humility does. So pride says I'm something I'm not. Humility doesn't say I'm less than I am. It just says I know who God is. I know who I am. I'm rational. I'm sane. This is, this is sanity. This is the world as it really is. So those who are humble, not meaning I always put myself down, but I understand who God is, I understand who God's made me, what he's made me to do, that's humility. And you remember Moses said, Moses wrote that he was the humblest man on the earth. You remember that? Kind of a joke. Moses writes, I'm the humblest man on the earth. We think, well, that should be, you're proud if you say you're humble. That's not the case. Moses understood he wanted nothing from God or from the, from the Jews. He was meek. He didn't grasp anything for himself. He puts himself on the line for them time after time. He writes, I'm the meekest man on the earth because he didn't want anything. He wasn't in it as a leader for anything. He had an accurate assessment. He wasn't proud, speaking proudly. He was telling it like it was. So for you and I, just like this king, the more pride we entertain in our life, the less we are actually connected to reality. 
we are entertaining insanity when we think more highly of ourselves than we should. On the flip side, when we're humble, not putting ourselves down, but having a right estimate of who God is and who he's made us to be and where we fit in his program, well, that's the most rational thought you can have. That's where you understand life as it really is. In Acts 26, when Paul is preaching to a few kings, Festus says to him, he's, he's talking about the gospel, and he's talking about righteousness to kings again, just like this. And you remember what Festus says to him? He says, Paul, your great learning has driven you mad. Buddy, you've lost your mind. But you remember what Paul says back? He says, no. You know that the words I speak are sober truth, ultimate reality. You know, this is, uh, in, a, in an upside-down world, it's easy for us to think. You remember Adam and Eve sinned, and they became like God. They knew good from evil, because they were evil. And so now, the natural inclination for us is to always put ourselves first. And it's to entertain this pride. I'm more important than I really am. I'm great, I'm powerful, I'm mighty, etc., etc., etc. You know, I'm the center of the universe. And Daniel... And Nebuchadnezzar, no, that's not quite the measure of it. God in heaven rules. And when you and I are in right relationship with him, we understand that. God rules. I'm not the king of my own life. I don't run my own life. I serve at the pleasure of the real king. And remember, Nebuchadnezzar was the king of kings on earth. But now through these words he says, even though I'm the king of kings on earth, I recognize that I'm just a little king under the great king. And for you or I, no matter how talented, successful, good-looking, etc., 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 anything you can measure, no matter what, we're just this little critter on this little planet floating out in space all under God's pleasure and all under God's rule and all under God's authority. Listen to these words out of Isaiah. 40. Isaiah says of God who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand. He's measured heaven with the span of his hand. He's calculated the dust of the earth in a measure. He's weighed the mountains in his little scales and the hills in a balance. Who has directed the spirit of the Lord? Who, is, who has his counselor has taught him? With whom did he take counsel? Who instructed him? Who taught him justice? Who taught him knowledge? Who showed him the way of understanding? The nations are like a drop in God's bucket. They're counted as the small dust on his scales. He lifts up the islands of the earth like a little thing. The nation of Lebanon is not sufficient to burn. All of its beasts aren't enough for a burnt offering for him. All nations before him are as nothing. They are counted by him less than nothing and worthless. Haven't you known? Haven't you heard? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood the foundations of the earth? It's he who sits above the circle of the earth. Its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. He stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them out like a tent to dwell in. He brings the princes to nothing. He makes the judges of the earth useless. Scarcely are they planted. Scarcely are they sown. Scarcely does their stock take root in the earth. He blows on them 
and they wither away, and the whirlwind will take them away like stubble. That's the God that made the heavens and the earth, and that's the God we serve. And God says, in light of who I am, you have nothing to boast in. You have nothing to take pride in. You're a grasshopper on a little speck of dust. You know, so Paul says later, when you compare yourselves with yourselves, you can look pretty good. But to get a right estimation of who you are in the grand scheme of things, we've got to recognize God in heaven rules. We serve at his pleasure. He's in charge of this world. Let me close by reading the tail end of a poem. This catches us up with Nebuchadnezzar during his days of beastly madness. It says, O God, who now will rescue me? It cannot. No, it cannot be these things would be revealed to me if I were beyond all hope. If ever in the dark I'll grope, then why would I be shown these things? O God on high, the King of kings, look down from heaven and pity me. If ever in this fraud I'll lie, then slay me now and let me die. But if it seems better to thee, I implore of you, save me, O giver of life, breath, and wealth. I beg you, save me from myself. Then my God mercifully returned to me my sanity. I lifted up my eyes to see the heavens open up to me. The stars, the clouds, the endless sky, the universe all rushing by. Me rooted to where I stood, and I perceived that it was good. I saw the whole of creation sing in voices of elation. To the high God, King of kings, the stars' song through the heavens rings. A hymn of praise, a joyful laud to him, the all, the supreme God. The silver stars and sun of gold proclaim his wonders manifold. The creatures on the unlit seas cry glory to the King of kings. And on his green and luscious land, God should be declared by man. When I saw the gemmy sky, how could I believe a lie of such cunning immensity that my creator was me? A lie of such magnitude that I myself, that I was myself a God. But when the mighty God I see, I understand life completely. Understand where I fit in. Comprehend where my strength ends. His sight gave me the perspective, the knowledge of how to live. Praise him that liveth forever, who sins not and fails never. My very life and breath he lends, whose reign never has an end, but is of endless duration, past and future generation. All of those of death and birth, all we inhabitants of earth, are passing dust and fleet shadows. Nothing we can say could him hold. His purposes will ever be done. His battles are always won. The heavens, earth, and seas obey the smallest command that he lays. What being in heaven or earth can say, what doest thou? No one can stay his great and his almighty hand. He is obeyed on seas and land. The most high God ruleth over man. Before him none on earth can stand. He gives to whom he desires authority and raises higher those to rule humanity, the basest of men and the lowly. Now I extol, honor, and praise the King of heaven and endless age. All of his works are just and right, the King of glory and of might. And the proud of human race he is able to abase. For men are easily deceived by things that they wish to believe. 
And always all humanity cries, I am God, insanity. Let's pray. Lord, the surest measure of truth, the ultimate reality, can only be measured by you. Lord, you are eternal, and we are here but a short time for vapors and shadows. Lord, nothing can constrain you. You're the creator. We're the creature. We live, Lord. We draw our breath by your pleasure. It's in you that we live and move and have our being. Lord, save us from the sin of pride and the insanity it brings. God, help us like Paul to have sound judgment, a real grasp on the world as it is. God, root all of our lives like trees in the truth of your word. Correct us by the truth of your word. Lead us and guide us, Lord. Make us, keep us humble, Lord, having a right understanding of who you are are and where we fit in your plan. And Lord, whether it's with Isaiah in chapter 40 or Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel 4, this poem or with Paul in the New Testament, help the cry of our heart be to praise you, the King of Kings, the one whose kingdom lasts to all generations. And Lord, we just thank you that in Jesus, the one, the highest who took the lowest place to redeem us through death, conquering sin and death, Lord the deeds of Satan and Lord bringing us home to live with you we marvel at your goodness towards us as well as your greatness and just thank you humbly in Jesus name